Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Geetha Ravindra, Vice President for Ombud Services for the McManning Group. Geetha has over 30 years of experience in ADR in international, federal, and state organizations. She began her career with the Supreme Court of Virginia, where she was Director of the Department of Dispute Resolution Services and managed court-connected mediation programs for 11 years. For many years, she provided mediation and training for the World Bank Group and several federal and state agencies and taught mediation at the University of Richmond and College of William & Mary Law Schools. Geetha then served as in-house mediator and ombuds for the International Monetary Fund and the Center for Global Development. Most recently, she was Director of Workplace Relations for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. She's an International Ombuds Association Certified Organizational Ombuds and a Virginia Supreme Court Certified Mediator. Geetha is past chair of the ABA Section of Dispute Resolution, past president of the Virginia Mediation Network, and past chair of the VSB VBA ADR Committee. Good morning, Geetha, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Thank you so much. Good morning. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Oh, great. Well, Geetha, I'd like to start how I usually do by asking about your first work experience. What's the first thing you did? So my first job was a, you're going to laugh, I was a supplemental instruction leader for my biology class in undergraduate, in college. Um, um, I'm not a science type person, but I had an amazing biology teacher. And because I was doing well in class, I was invited to help students, you know, who needed additional support. And I thought, wow, that would be fun. And it was my first chance to work with, you know, others, peers, and it was a teaching role. So basically my, my, my job was to help make the complex material interesting and understandable. And I loved it when ideas and, and concepts made sense and like the light bulb literally went off. And I, when I look back now, I'm thinking, you know, I guess my love for teaching and helping people started back then. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is so interesting. You say that's your first, your first job because the parallels for what you do now, which we'll get yes. to, into in a moment, are yeah. just right there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't a biology major. Is that correct? I was not a biology major. I was actually a political science major. I went to law school after that. And so I recognized while I did well in biology, science was not my thing. So (laughs) (laughs) it's always good to know what our strengths are and what they are not. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So when you went through law school, did you practice for a while as a lawyer? You know, interestingly, I was very fortunate to have um, gotten an opportunity when I was in law school to work for a company called the Private Adjudication Center. Um, I'll admit, I didn't land a really great job as a 1L, you know, as many of my classmates did in a big firm and got, you know, getting your feet wet as a lawyer. I actually worked with this nonprofit organization, which was affiliated with Duke Law School, and they opened my eyes to alternative dispute resolution. It was just amazing. So I had my first taste of what it was like to use alternative strategies to help people with conflicts. 
and I was smitten. So I never practiced law. I have a law degree and I'm licensed in North Carolina and Virginia, but I never applied uh, my legal education in a traditional law practice. I have been a mediator and an ombuds for my, my whole career. <laughs> that is wonderful. I mean, I mean, the background in law, of course, I think is very helpful because you have the certain perspective. I don't, I'm not a lawyer, so my background is different. To have that perspective and go right in to say, let's do something different, Right. the alternatives. Right. No, it was very cutting edge, actually. When I was in law school, ADR mediation was never mentioned. Mm. This was 1992 when I graduated. And it may have been just a short uh, reference in civil procedure class, but otherwise it wasn't really a big thing. So to work with an organization, and they actually hired me after I graduated, that was dedicated to looking at disputes, even complex cases, and exploring ways of expediting resolution, which gave the parties more control was really fascinating. I had never gotten any exposure to that in law school. So it was really very nice. <laughs> and what you said right there is what I love about alternative dispute resolution is that when we're caught in a conflict, we just feel so disempowered and all the cascading things that go along with that and the havoc it wreaks in our life. And we think, well, what are my, what am I, what can I do? Yeah. And the only thing that most people think is available to them is taking the person to court or I've been taken to court. Yes. And yet that's just so sad because it's not true. There are different options available for people to give them back their advocacy and to start healing whatever has happened so that it doesn't get worse. Absolutely. In fact, the first role I had was with the private adjudication center, which I mentioned I worked with and the Dalcon Shield arbitration program which I was managing was to help women who had been injured mm. by the defective Dalcon Shield intrauterine device. And they had a lot of medical injuries. It had been years that these uh, women suffered without recourse. And so to be part of uh, processes which allowed them to have closure and some sense of redress for mm -hmm. their harm, for their injuries was tremendous. And um, as you said, there are options that are much more empowering. And when you as a neutral, you know, uh, as a, either a mediator, facilitator, ombuds, feel that you are part of helping people find solutions, find happiness, being able to move forward, that, that sense of satisfaction, I haven't found anywhere else. <laughs> I love that. So you have this wonderful little video that you have on the, the McMahon website about what an ombuds is. And what you said is that, you know, and I've noticed this too, that people are taken aback, especially in mediation or other places when you say you're not their advocate. Yes. But you said that you're an advocate for fair processes. Right. And I think that's so powerful that as a mediator or as an ombuds, that what you want is to level the playing field and for people to have their voices heard, both sides, all sides, and empower, leaving that space for real conversation for the people themselves to find that resolution. Absolutely. I think what attracted me to the practice of law was the ability to help people in very complex, difficult situations and what I recognized, as you just shared in ADR, whether you're in mediation or talking with an ombuds, you're giving, you're empowering people to have voice. 
and have some sense of control over outcomes. And that is huge. Mm -hmm. That is true. That ability to frame and, and fashion and design um, resolutions and options that are meaningful and impactful for the individual, that's tremendous. And, you know, as an attorney, obviously, you're thinking advocacy, you know, I need to represent, I need to fight for this person. But what I realized, and I used to teach advocacy and mediation in law schools at U of R and William and Mary, is that as a neutral, as an impartial, you can actually be far more successful and effective in helping people reach their goals yeah. by helping them think about things from different perspectives and uh, listening, of course, to what their underlying needs and interests are, as opposed to pushing a certain outcome. So that, that just as you said, it's just really, really important for people to have a voice and to experience some sense of self-control. Mm -hmm. I think we're not unfortunately taught in school or in childhood, we're not socialized to be problem solvers or to collaborate. It's not, you know, now peer mediation has become a thing, right? Mm -hmm. In elementary school and middle school and so on. But generally speaking, it's not a it's not a skill set that we have. We always look to a third person to make a decision for us, whether it's a judge or our boss or our parents. And so ADR, uh, whichever form you are looking at, it's teaching people, uh, you know, basically how to problem solve themselves, which is really an important skill. Absolutely. And what I think is so powerful as well is that a lot of times we think the issue is the this issue. And once it's solved, then I move forward, whatever the, the conclusion is. But that's not how it works, right? But when you give people the skills themselves, before the conclusion, whatever it might be, is, is reached, you've already started to teach that person or give that person the, the space themselves to heal and move forward and be creative and think past this win-lose scenario to hopefully the win-win because it's not just about this. It's the quality of the rest of my life, how this affects my relationships. And in a workplace, when we think about win-lose, everybody loses because they're, oh, they're probably still on the same team. Absolutely. You know, um, so the proverb I, I like to share that um, amplifies what you just shared is if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. But if you teach a man how to fish, he eats for a lifetime. So when we're modeling as neutrals, you know, effective listening and communication skills, they are then hopefully, as you said, able to take that forward in all relationships and in the workplace, particularly, which is my area of, of focus. If someone is dealing with a, uh, a challenging situation or a conflict, whether it's with their supervisor or coworker, it not only, as you said, affects themselves um, and, and their life and their uh, career, it impacts the entire office yeah. and it, it is contagious. Yeah. You know, Professor Christine Porath has written a lot about this, that in fact, that negativity impacts everyone, all the bystanders who are also privy to that type of dynamic, yeah. unfortunately. It's so true. And what is wonderful is that the converse is true. So when you have a healthy work environment, which is not free from conflict because conflict isn't bad, but it's the managing of the conflict that we can do hard things together. We expect to have conflicts because of course, if we are going to have diversity, which is a good, then to take advantage of that diversity, we're going to have different values, different ideas, but to harness all of that, that's a good, 
And when you set that kind of culture and develop psychological safety in these pockets with an organization, the riches, the, the, the satisfaction that we get from our jobs, and then of course it can trickle into our families and our communities. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned so many of those key values in an organization that promote and support, you know, managing a conflict effectively, because as you said, it's unrealistic to to think that you're going to put a group of people with different ideas and backgrounds and experiences in us in the same space and not have issues. Right. <laughs> and so it really is the key is how you manage it. Yeah. And, um, you know, Amy Edmondson's, you know, psychological safety. Yeah huge, hugely important when it comes to being able to feel that you can speak up, ask questions, admit mistakes, um, engage in important discussions. There's another uh, model I like to reference called the Johari window, um, Mm -hmm. which also describes what we call an open space, which is really psychological safety, where you allow people feel free to open up, share exchange ideas, ask questions, make mistakes perhaps, but it's okay because we're always learning, right? So That's one thing. I taught philosophy for over 20 years, undergrad, intro to philosophy, ethics. And what I, what I thought my role was, was to help people develop their critical thinking skills. Not, I mean, giving them content. Yes. This is what Plato thinks. This is what Kant thinks, but really developing, well, what do you think and why? And trying to help students try to create that safe space, which is really hard, especially in the culture that a lot of youth are in, the cancel culture. If you say something wrong, we're going to attack you. And so how do we create those open spaces where people can fail, where people can say things that are politically incorrect in order to try to be loving and caring and, but in other words, be able to get it wrong and not be branded or whatever it might be. Oh, I think, regrettably, as you said, that's a really difficult balance today for our youth and and everyone for that matter, right? How to strike that balance. And I think that if we give people the benefit of the doubt, if we are forgiving, and if we understand that people are coming from a good place, we can we can, we can get there. So I used to work at the International Monetary Fund. I was their first mediator. And I loved working there because it was, you know, we brought people from over 150 countries together, which was so rich, right, um, in terms of an organizational culture. And of course, we had different communication styles. And so to be able to understand the nuances of culture was huge. And so if we happen to use language that um, meant something different in a different culture or engage in conduct that was inadvertently misunderstood, to be able to, at the lowest and most direct level, have a, a, a safe conversation about that was enormously important in helping to support a culture of trust and understanding where people can, again, work well together and thrive. Um, very important to just be mindful of that always. Yeah. So how did you how did you do that or how did you help people have that space to communicate and you know operate the principle of charity extending goodwill when typically in a conflict we want to ascribe bad attentions to the other person. Yeah, no that's unfortunately true um because we are judging ourselves by our intentions and others by their behaviors. <laughs> And we draw so many conclusions, right, about why someone else is doing what they're doing, which are usually not accurate. (laughs) So I was, as I shared, um, the 
international, I had the really the honor of working as the International Monetary Fund's first mediator. I launched their program and the ability to first help people understand what is mediation, right? Because for many, it, it is a, it's a construct or methodology that is not very familiar. And so um, I did initially a lot of outreach and education about this process, bringing um, folks together around a table with a neutral person where they can be assured of confidentiality. I think that was one very important, you know, uh, principle. And that the goal there was not to be judgmental, blaming, shaming, or complaining, but instead to actually honor the other person's perspective, to listen and be willing to receive and in a uh, kind of using the nonviolent communication model, right? I, I Using I statements and being able to express the impact of what is happening in that situation and then forward, future focused, you know, what might we look at together? So I did a lot of education around what mediation entails in terms of process and goals. And then I think what was very helpful to create the safe space is I did a lot of pre-mediation discussions with both parties, or if it was multiple parties, with each person to help them first one-on-one -on -one with me describe and share the impact and concerns that they had safely. And then I could talk almost in a conflict coaching manner with them about their goals and their interests and how to frame what their concerns are in a manner that could be heard by the other side. Yes. Because as we know, sometimes when we voice our concerns in a manner that is perhaps heard as disrespectful or hurtful, it's going to shut down a conversation instantly. And so helping people um, think about and plan how to have a difficult conversation, I think is part of the success of a good mediation. And so I did a lot of prep, if you will, pre-meetings before I bring people together and then have those joint sessions. And the other thing I, um, I really appreciated about that organization's program is that we were not limited by time because I, I worked, I managed the court annex mediation programs for uh, the Supreme Court of Virginia for many years um, early in my career. And in many court annex programs, you only have a certain amount of time within which to mediate. And if you're not successful, you are back in the courtroom. And that pressure, you know, it's a, it's a lot. And so sometimes parties are unable to make decisions very quickly. So in this organizational context, I'll say, we have the luxury of being able to schedule as many sessions as needed. And I think that also is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. The pre-mediation is, I think, so essential because a part of the conflict is someone doesn't feel heard. Yes. They're not being listened to. And they're playing these tapes over and over. And so then to have a neutral come in and listen, be that first and be empathetic. Yeah. And but not just a sounding board, that's the first step, but then being able to mirror back and help them reframe and talk right. about, I want you to be able to communicate this, but let's communicate it in a way that the other person will be able to hear and move forward instead of just the backwards, right? We got to start somewhere and we're going to start with the pain, but then yeah. we can start moving that. What are we going to do forward looking? Exactly, exactly. And as much of that as we can do in that front end, as you said, will help 
people be in a better space uh, when they're in that joint session together. (laughs) Absolutely. Because there's so much fear and people lack the confidence and they don't know what's going to happen, but giving them that practice space and helping them see, you know, that even though the neutral is not an advocate, they are an advocate for, for having, creating that space, that safe place, that neutral space, that confidential space for everybody. And I love the word that you used of empathy, because I think that when we bring empathy to the room, when we bring care and con- kindness and connection to the room, people feel it. Yeah. You know, they'll they'll experience that sense of it. it this is a um, an environment that is supportive and fair, and I can trust in this neutral, and I can trust in this process. And if you have those elements at play you are more likely, hopefully, to be able to be supportive and successful as a group in in addressing whatever it is that situation is. Yeah, absolutely. Helping to set those expectations. People in general will rise or fall to the expectations around them. And so if you can really communicate and demonstrate, especially in those first meetings, that this is this is what's going to happen and this is how I can support you and this is what we we'll, you know and then following through it gives that people gives people that sort of trust in the process because the resolution and the restoration is found in the process so many times you know we want to upload it it's like this is what I need this is what I'm going to get but it's that process of the dialogue and setting exactly. them up for that absolutely and and in a work environment as you shared earlier, when that mediation, let's say, or is finished, they need to get back together. Right. And so if we have just fixed the tip of the iceberg, which is the presenting issue, we haven't done justice, if you will, right. because they need to be able ideally to get in a, in a way where they can communicate again, can collaborate again, can feel that they can support each other again. And you can only be in that more positive, constructive space if you've managed in that um, discussion to work through a lot of these uh, concerns. Absolutely. And I think when you get people together, you can start to see what function of the organization has contributed to this issue, right? Instead of just scapegoating the other person, we can say, oh, this, that, and the other needs to be addressed, or at least we need to call it out and say it's not just on the other person or whatever. And that's what I love about the Ombuds organization is that what what I want to do with workplace conflict resolution and restoration is preventative care. How can we make it so that, because a lot of times when people do find themselves in mediation, things have exploded and there's a lot of pain. So what can we do from the organizational side to set that um, work environment so that we can minimize some of this, this harm that happens? And so the ombuds gets both pieces. So can you tell us how you got into the ombuds world? Yes, absolutely. So um, my work as an ombuds really began when I was at the International Monetary Fund. Um, We, in larger organizations like that, they have resources ranging from ombuds to mediation to a more formal processes and ethics office, et cetera. So I was always uh, collaborating with our ombuds office and recognized what an incredibly important resource this is as a first place when anyone is experiencing a a concern, a question, a challenge um, that's affecting their ability to do their job well. They have this 
impartial, informal, independent, confidential space to have a conversation. And from that discussion, they can go forward and decide, okay, maybe this resource would be helpful to me, or maybe I should have that discussion with my coworker or my manager. So I was motivated after working with our um, ombuds colleague, because we often you know, had matters that crossed over uh, to take the IOA Foundation's training myself. I got certified as an organizational ombuds. I served as the IMF's ombuds for a year. When I left the International Monetary Fund, I was the ombud, the first ombuds for the Center for Global Development. And then um, later in my career, I worked as the Fourth Circuit's Director of Workplace Relations, which actually um, its title doesn't seem to say it. It is an ombuds role <laughs> where I was supporting judges, managers, and judiciary employees within the Fourth Circuit in addressing workplace concerns and issues confidentially, informally, and at the lowest level. So my um, my work, I feel that my work as a mediator and ombuds are, are so interconnected. The skill sets are very much aligned. You know, um, we have to be very good listeners. We have to be able to help people reflect, consider the issues that they're bringing to the table and reframe them in a constructive way and also reflect a little bit on their own role, if you will, in the situation. And based on their goals, what options are available to them? Again, being neutral and impartial in both as the mediator and ombuds are critical. I feel almost though that the ombuds has a more significant role than that of a mediator because mediation is one process that can be used to resolve disputes, right? We have lots of processes, including litigation, which we talked about earlier. And as you said, when something comes to mediation, it's usually escalated to some extent. And these days, actually, people think of mediation almost as a formal process, which it's not meant to be, but they perceive it to be. And so as an ombuds, we can use mediation. We can serve as a mediator. We can refer parties to mediation. But we have within our toolkit as ombuds, many, many more tools. You know, we can serve as conflict coach. We can serve as a facilitator. We can provide information. There's just a lot more um, in our function as an ombuds that we can do to support not only the employee and or manager, but also the organization as a whole. Yeah. <laughs> Why does not every organization have an ombuds or something like it? Because we know for a fact you're going to have conflict. We know all of the problems that happen, the unmanaged, unmanaged conflict. And we know all the different sorts of power dynamics, this, that, and the other. So why not have something for your employees so that we can de-escalate, so that yeah. we can save money, but for me, more importantly, uh, people's mental and physical health? I, I asked myself the same question, Sherry. <laughs> In fact, my position now, I'm a vice president for Ombud Services at the McCammon Group. And I, you know, having been a full-time kind of in-house ombuds, as you just shared, recognize how helpful it can be in promoting and supporting a work environment um, of, that's more productive and um, really provides employees that valuable safe space for considering how best to address any workplace concerns and issues that might arise. And what I recognized is that um, most organizations don't perhaps have the volume of disputes 
or the number of employees to justify hiring a full-time ombuds. So that could be part of what's happening is that organizations just don't see how they can um, really support a full-time resource like that. And so with the McCammon Group, what we're doing is outsourced ombud services or external services. So an organization, if they're smaller, or just want to experiment and see, is this going to actually help our employees? They can they can try it out and and we can provide services on an as needed basis. And it has become um, it's very it's it's exciting for me because it's starting to really uh, grow in terms of the organizations we're serving in this way. And for me, my goal is that indeed all organizations, big and small, for profit, not for profit, federal uh, international, you know, state, local, that it's schools, university, many universities, of course, have an ombuds that all entities provide their staff access to this resource. It's, I, I hope one day it's not seen as a um, nice to have, you know, kind of secondary, but not primary tool. I think that especially post COVID, um, we've seen so many changes in the workplace and uh, social justice concerns, diversity, equity, inclusion issues. And employees are not going to stay in an organization where the culture is not uh, respectful, inclusive, and positive. And there are many more choices that staff have. So you're gonna see, um, managers will see turnover and um, unfortunately unhappy employees where we are not paying attention to the well-being of our staff. So it's actually an investment when you have an ombud service, whether it's internal or external. Um, it's an investment in your employees, basically. And where you have it, generally staff are very, very grateful and 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 happy. <laughs> yeah. I love I love that the outsourcing ombuds for a lot of the reasons that you said. So if an organization doesn't know if, if they're large enough to be able to afford a full time, if they don't know, they can try it out. But I, I definitely have a heart for local, small businesses. And conflict is everywhere, big organizations, small organizations. And to be able to have access to this preventative care, preventative workplace care that a lot of people do see as a nice to have, but I think it's essential. And I think you can easily make a monetary, like this will save you money. When we think oh. about turnover, the cost of hiring, uh, lawsuits, uh, exactly. productivity. I mean, there's so many things down the line. Yeah, uh, you know, innovation, creativity, all these sorts yeah. of different issues. It's it is a cost saving measure that can be measured, and yet, it, yeah, it, it takes a little bit of imagination and being acquainted with acquainted with it and the benefits to do it. I agree, and I think that sometimes, Mary, I don't know if you are hearing this. There's a little confusion, like. The word ombuds itself is like not familiar to a lot of folks, right? Like ombuds, what is ombuds? Um, and so it's, I think it's a lot of also outreach on our part as ombuds, just, uh, just as we're doing right now with our conversation today, using the word more, spreading um, the value and opportunities that these resources provide to organizations can be helpful. There's also sometimes a little confusion between the role of an HR person and an ombuds. And we are not management, we are not HR. We in no way seek to replace or substitute for those important roles. We are complementary. 
And as you said, when you have a, a function like an ombuds, even if it's just for a few hours a month, that can help provide employees without any fear of retaliation, because that we know is the biggest concern staff have to raising a workplace issue is fear of retaliation, rep reprisal, effect on their career. They don't say anything. And so they continue to experience a difficult issue and they may choose to leave or they may choose to just get angry or affect you know, their relationships uh, within the workplace, none of which is a healthy approach, of course. And so when we can continue to um, promote and, and recognize uh, in with managers and HR professionals that this is a resource that can help support your success, my hope is um, that we're going to see ombud services more widely embraced. Yeah, That is such a good point, right? Understanding the difference between HR and ombuds, and they're not competing. In fact, okay. they, yeah, that if you have an ombuds, it will help help free up the HR people to do what it is they want to do and to, to provide the services that they provide. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Geetha, a lot of people think, oh, you are a mediator. You are an ombuds. You probably don't have or haven't had any conflict in the workplace, <laughs> which oh, just about every mediator that I've talked to has conflict because they're human persons and work with other human persons. So can you share with us um, a time, either at an organization or with a, a boss or employee that you had some workplace difficulty and how you managed that situation? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, Mary. And, and as you said, we are all human. And so inevitably, uh, it will be a, a, something that we all experience at some point in our life. So I, I did have a difficult uh, workplace situation. And I in that in that time felt very very belittled uh disrespected um i was so uh scared to speak up and despite my you know knowledge of psychological safety and conflict resolution training when it was happening to me i struggled um i i did not feel valued or supported and i could see the impact on my own mental health and well-being because i kept ruminating i kept thinking about this and i was thinking oh my gosh why does this happen what can i do differently how do i um improve this and despite my best efforts it never seemed to get better and i i should have spoken to more senior leadership about my concerns but I'll be honest, I didn't have the courage. I did not have the courage. And I, I really struggled with this. And my ultimate choice was to leave the organization. And in reflection, think back that, you know, just as I train, you know, coworkers and in my role as an ombuds, as I talk with, with employees and managers, if we're ever feeling a disconnect at work, whenever we're feeling something isn't right, we can't just hold it. We can't just assume that it's going to go away or it's going to get better or accommodate it. We have to recognize there is an issue here. And ideally, we will either directly have that difficult conversation with the person or um, individual that we're, we're, we are concerned about or request the assistance of someone to help facilitate that conversation because the unfortunate reality with all conflict is that it doesn't go away. It just gets harder and worse. And sometimes, again, I, I 
you know, like others in, in similar situations, chose to extricate myself. But the impact, you know, as I've reflected on this, you know, I've become stronger. I, I feel I've gained greater empathy uh, and understanding when I work with others on their workplace issues, because I've been there. I know exactly how it feels. I know how much it hurts. And I don't want that for anyone. Right. And so I will work extra hard in my role as a mediator or ombuds to support people who are dealing with such difficult situations. But I would also say that I think that what we all need to, if we have the ability, we all need to recognize that we don't have to stay in abusive work environments. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have to. And so again, unfortunately, at times, if it's, it is the case that we are in a place that's not a good fit for us, that is not supporting our core values, and we don't feel valued and respected, then if the opportunity presents itself, we ought to try to find a place where we can thrive. Yeah. yeah. I think that's so helpful to have an ombuds or somebody to talk it through because conflict can shut us down and be incredibly isolating. And we tell ourselves these false narratives like, I can't do anything about it. I have to stay here. I am stuck. Nothing is yeah. going to get better. There's nothing I can do. And if you don't have somebody like an ombuds, but if you find, uh, if you have a trusted mentor, somebody that you know is confidential that can help you, we all need help, right? We, when we have a broken arm, we go to a doctor. When we, yes. you know, our car is broken and why we think that we don't need help at work. We all need that help. Absolutely. Yeah. So we can really assess our situation and those tapes that we're playing in our minds. How true are they? You know, what parts are true? Right. To look at our actual options. Yes, absolutely. The the perspective of a of a neutral from the outside who's objective can be huge because I know that many of us like I know I do. I go home and I talk to my husband all the time about things and he's a great ally and sounding board for me. Um, but he's also my advocate, right? Because right. He, wants, he loves me and he wants the best for me. And so sometimes, you know, while he's a great listener, he's also trying to like um, be my advocate. And ombuds is an advocate for the whole work environment. They're not just for management. They're not just for staff. They are for the whole workplace to be a positive, safe space. And so having that perspective and support um, can be really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What about when you think about all the different places that you've worked, what is the best experience you've had and what was so good about it for you? So my best experience, which I will say continues to be something I carry in my heart, honestly, is one that is one where my, my manager, my supervisor gave me full support and trust. Um, I was fairly young and to be given that kind of autonomy and responsibility and visibility was tremendous. And when, when one receives both trust and mentoring, um, it's a beautiful combination because you are given the ability to learn and grow and innovate and develop. And you also have a resource. So you're not all, you know, out on there on a ledge on your own. And so what it does is it builds confidence. And so that my best experience is one that gave me 
the passion for the work I do, confidence in my ability to be a leader to do um, the work that we do to communicate with people in higher levels of authority and responsibility. And so I am just so grateful. And I'll just say that that supervisor manager to this day, after 30 years in this work, continues to be a mentor and guide for me. Wow. (laughs) How lucky are you that you had that early on in your career? Oh, I'm so blessed. I am. I really, really am fortunate. And, you know, we talk a lot, we hear a lot uh, and read a lot about allyship and mentorship and people opening doors uh, for others. And I can say that I, that was so important for me because to be given an opportunity and trust and support and positive feedback and guidance and uh, all of that, it, it allows you it allows you to blossom in a way that if you had had like the experience I shared a moment ago, <laughs> it would have shut me down. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So I feel like having had the the best type of experience early in my career helped me maintain my ability to, to work through what was a difficult situation, a work situation later in life. Yeah. Oh, that is so lovely. Mm-hmm. So, Geetha, when you think about the future of work, yeah. what do you think needs to happen? What piece of advice do you have so that we can not only treat each other with dignity and respect, but have flourishing work environments? What do you see that needs to happen? So I think that we all, irrespective of our, of our role, we all have to recognize that we are, we're not work people and and home people. I don't, that's not a good word, but meaning that our lives are integrated and that to bring out the best in individuals in the workplace, regardless of whether we're in office or in a hybrid workplace, we have to ensure that we are treating each other with dignity and respect, that we are communicating clearly and transparently with one another, and that we are creating the giving people that psychological safety that we alluded to earlier and that our, um, the way we treat each other, the way we are with each other, again, irrespective of our, of our role, is aligned with our core values, right? And that the work that everyone does is acknowledged and recognized and appreciated. Because when we, again, no, no matter what field or sector you're in, when you do work that you love, then you're not really working. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not work. And so what we want to do is create for everyone, irrespective of field, irrespective of role, um, the sense that they're doing wonderful things, that they are supported by everyone around them, peers and management, and that they are able to uh, live their values. And and that, I think, has become the crux. I I see it um, every day in my conversations with employees as an ombuds that they are feeling sad, they're feeling frustrated, they're feeling confused because there's no communication, there's lack of transparency, decisions are made in a, you know, in some black space, a hole somewhere, and and they and there's not not alignment, if you will, between the values that an organization um, describes themselves as adhering to and, and the way people feel they're being treated. So I think we need to find more alignment and recognize. We're all going through a lot of change right now. The world of work, it has been changing. It will continue to change. 
And so we have to be present with the change and support each other through that. Um, I don't know that I answered your question, but these are just some of the thoughts that are coming in my mind right now. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, everything that you said, it made me think of a variety of things. And one of the things that made me think of is, you know, we think about work-life, home-life and work-life balance. And yes, absolutely. And yet when we treat people as people first and employees second, and we honor that, And so I don't think of you as just nine to five. So when your kid is sick or you've got this event or whatever it is, it's not, I'm letting you off to do this and you owe me. (laughs) It's you are a whole person. And when I treat you as a whole person, you're going to do better work. I mean, this weekend, when I said, I'm not going to work, I had like all these wonderful thoughts, you know, so I emailed myself and then I got back to work. And then I did them, but I don't feel, well, I work for myself, but I don't, you know, but it it is that, that holistic, we're not just one or the other and and treating people as adults. That's that transparency, giving people information. Yes. I really think with information that you have to have a really good reason to not share it instead of the other way around. Don't think of a reason to share it. Yeah. A really good, you know, like it's proprietary. It's yes. Yes. Let people know what's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, Simon Sinek often talks about the why, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, not just information, but helping people understand the rationale. Yes. Because so many times things are happening, right, in the workplace and decisions are being made. And because we, again, using the ladder of inference, you know, we kind of watch what's happening and we speculate Mm -hmm. and we make assumptions about why all of this is happening. And regrettably, because we are so, uh, our brain is always scanning for danger. We make assumptions that it's threatening us, right? Right. Change is threatening us. And so being able to communicate the why behind what's happening can be very, very helpful in, in supporting trust, you know, in, in the work environment. And, um, and I love what you said about being uh, treating people as humans and an integrated approach to our workforce, you know, because we truly are in a, we're all in this together, as they say. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. That's right. Well, Geetha, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it so much. My pleasure, Mary. It has been so delightful speaking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Take care. Thank you again, Geetha, for being on Conflict Managed. What a delightful conversation. If you're still not sure what an ombuds is, go to the International Ombuds Association. You can find them online. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services. I'm your host, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember... Conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Take care.